as I was growing up, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church. But I had very little experience with what's called the church calendar, uh, otherwise known as the liturgical year. Um, Again, that's just the kind of church that I grew up in. We celebrated Easter and we celebrated Christmas, but I had never heard of these things called Advent or Lent or Pentecost. Those seasons were foreign to me. Uh, I didn't know it was this time-honored tradition of marking Christian seasons and time. Now, you may not, like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Paul. Um, I'll put this up. So there are these seasons in the calendar year that the Christian church have used and marked out to best tell the true Christian story. So Advent is the birth of Christ. Epiphany is the manifestation of Christ. Lent is during the season marking the temptation and death of Christ. Easter, the resurrection of Christ. Pentecost, the pouring out of the spirit of Christ. Again, all of it helps to orient us around the story of Jesus. And again, up until about adulthood, maybe I had vaguely heard of one or two of those. But there's one particular season in this liturgical year that I had never heard of ever until maybe just a few years ago. And it's this season right here. It's the season called ordinary time. It's the season that we are currently now in. It's roughly, again, after Pentecost, so in the spring, all the way until Advent, which begins in November. So it's the summertime. It's late spring. It's summertime and early fall. Ordinary time. Now, the reason they call it ordinary time is because it's ordinary. What? It's this time and space when we seek to live as the people of God, carrying out the mission of God in ordinary ways. Neighborhoods, workplaces, homes, carpools, following Jesus when it's not a distinct holiday, ordinary time. Here's one of the things, though, that I've discovered in my, I don't know how many decades now, following Jesus. One of the hardest seasons of life to follow Jesus is ordinary time because it's just so darn ordinary. We love highlights, don't we? We love mountaintop experiences. We love Holy Spirit fireworks. In fact, even though we may not love it, even seasons of crisis get our hearts pumping. But ordinary? We don't like ordinary, especially as Americans. Americans don't do ordinary. Everything's got to be big and better, faster, stronger, different, new. We don't have a lot of stomach for ordinary time. 
common, mundane, ordinary Mondays. So in those times, in those seasons, oftentimes we don't know what to do. We don't know how to act. We don't know what's next because it's so boring. And so what happens is we often waste a lot of ordinary time. Or nowadays, we scroll a lot of ordinary time away. So here's the question today. How does a person live well in ordinary time? If you have a Bible, why don't you open to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. I will have the verses up on the screen too. Believe it or not, this is the final sermon in our series, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is sermon 21. And we've been doing this in bits and pieces throughout this entire year. But this is it. And while stories never fully come to an end, like this is not the end of the book of Genesis, it goes on. There are twists and turns. It's the end of our time looking at this particular section of Scripture. Most recently, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. And, and, and what a... Man, what a crazy story Jacob's life is. Filled with highs, filled with lows. Lots of, lots of big moments for Jacob, right? If you've been with us. Stolen birthrights. Embezzled blessings. Rock pillow dreams. Marriage competitions. Birthing competitions, all-night wrestling matches, stress-filled days wondering when he'd be reunited with his brother Esau who wanted to kill him. So Jacob's story, if nothing else, has been exciting, (laughs) at times maddening, but filled with things that are far from ordinary. But as this story, as the series, as this section comes to a close, what's noteworthy about the ending of Jacob's story is actually its lack of fireworks. So today is kind of how Jacob ends his season of time in the scripture story, and he figures out how to live an ordinary time. So at this point now, as we're in Genesis 35, his big reunion, his big, like, decades-long, decades-long dreaded reunion with Esau has happened. And what a scene that was. These two brothers that have been separated through deception end up reunited in an embrace, weeping on each other. So 21 sermons later, how does this end? Again, I want to highlight three components of the journey of life in ordinary time. So let's go ahead and dive in to the story. Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So last week, if you were with us, I think Tom did a great job. Didn't Tom do a great job? Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Did a great job in shaping the, the story for us and explaining this big reunion scene where Jacob sees the face of grace in his brother who comes not to kill him but to welcome him. And these two estranged brothers end up again in each other's arms and they're content. Now the story that I'm not going to spend time in this week is the chapter in between, Genesis 34, right after that reunion, there is, again, you can read it on your own time, but there's this shocking, scandalous story of sexual assault where one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, gets raped, and then their brothers take revenge. It's a circumcision revenge. It's a, it's a really actually a crazy story, Genesis 34. But that brings us now into Genesis 35. So again, all this stuff has happened in Jacob's life, and now the Esau dilemma has been resolved, and the Dinah crisis has been avenged, right or wrong, it's been avenged. And now you've got this story. Things are settling in. And Jacob once again hears from God. What does God tell him to do? God tells Jacob to return. So that's what Jacob does. He gets up, he arises to go to Bethel to make an altar to God. To make an altar to the God who appeared to him. To the God who appeared to him way back in his story when he first goes to his uncle's house, to Laban. So here's the first piece of the story. Here's the first part of living well in ordinary time. Returning. Returning. So like I pointed out already, Jacob's story has taken many twists and turns. Right? So many parts, so many pieces, so many ups and downs. And what's happening here in this moment, it's as if God calls Jacob to go full circle. He calls him back to a place that has meaning. He calls him to go back to a place that he once was before. And again, some of you may remember the story because you've been with us this long. God is pointing Jacob back to Genesis 28. Back to the time in his life when Jacob first runs away. Remember again, he, he rips off his brother, deceives his father. It raises such a crisis. He's like, I'm going to get killed if I stay here. Mom tells him, go, get away. Go to Haran. Go, go to where my family is and run away because I don't want to lose you all. So he leaves, Genesis 28. He makes a break for it. He ends up in the middle of nowhere. 
He ends up in the darkness. He ends up in the desert. It's Genesis 28 when Jacob pulls up that rock for his pillow and he falls asleep and he has this dream of the ladder to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending. And basically, God shows up right there in the middle of nowhere and engages Jacob for the first meaningful time. And you can read more of Genesis 28, the whole story, if you want to. But here's what happens. Genesis 28, 18, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on the top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, or Bethel, the house of God. So Bethel, This is a place with significant meaning and memories for Jacob. Bethel is the place of the dream. Bethel is the place of visitation. Bethel is the place where he has God awareness for the first time. Bethel is the place where Jacob first hears about the specific promises of God for him about the land, about the offspring, about God's promise to bring him back to that place, his promise to be with him, his promise to bless him, his promise to return him to the land. Bethel is the place of Jacob's first altar, Jacob's first oil anointing. This is Jacob's first God encounter. In that moment, Jacob was freaked out, scared to death, running for his life, unsure of what was going to happen, and God appeared. And he says, surely God is in this place. And I didn't even know it. But there's something significant that happens in Bethel. It's when God first breaks in. And so now, all these years later, so many things have happened, so much water under the bridge At the end of his story, at the end of this scene, God says, I want you to go back to Bethel. I want you to go back there. I want you to return to that place. Now, this may not be the most earth-shattering moment. Genesis 35. This may not be the biggest highlight of his life. In fact, if I had to name top highlights, I probably would point back to some other things. The wrestling match maybe seeing Esau, but it's here. It's something to pay attention to. This is something to note as we live life in ordinary time. Returning. You see, this is really important for us to name in the church. You won't always have a dream. You won't always get a word. You may not always have a vision. You may not always have a mountaintop experience or this like goosebump feeling of God all the time. And in those moments, in those ordinary time scenes, when you're trying to figure out what do I do? How do I live? Where do I go? What do I turn to? When you're just trying to take your next step in ordinary time, returning can be a huge gift and a boost to your soul. Maybe you could put it this way. When you don't know the way forward, sometimes your best move is to go back. 
Sometimes the best move is to return to those places of encounter. I know that for me, sometimes in my life and journey, sometimes the best move I can do when I'm unsure is to go back. And this isn't just a geographic thing that you have to like physically go somewhere. But if you're able to step back and look at the big picture, can you remember the places where God first broke in? Maybe it's returning to a place where you first met Jesus. Do you remember what that was like? Maybe it's returning to scriptures where God spoke. Maybe it's returning to the promises of God that are crystal clear. Returning to those places of God encounter in your story. We'll talk more in a second about that. But if you don't know and you're unsure, sometimes returning can be a gift. But then on his way back to Bethel, something else happens, which is repenting. Repenting. Oftentimes these things go hand in glove. Repenting. I know in some circles, repent is a dirty word. Repent. Oh, it's laced with guilt and shame and baggage. And you get like conjure up images of angry people yelling at you, or maybe it's your parents yelling at you. But repent is not a dirty word. Actually, repent. Repenting, repentance is a gift. It's a gift. It brings life. And it was never meant to be a one-time thing. So look at verse 2. Genesis 35, verse 2. He he, he hears from God to get up and go to Bethel and, and dwell there. And in his preparation to return, to go back to that place of first encounter with God... He has some instruction for his family. He has some words of command to those that are traveling with him. And he says to his household and all who were with him, all right, family, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. So in this call to return, something else begins to happen in Jacob where Jacob is stirred to clean his house to put away foreign gods. He makes sure it's important for them to know it's time to take care of business. Now again, for some context, it may be helpful to remember Jacob's journey. He has been moving around a bit, and for most of his adult life, he has then been living up north, away from the land of promise, away from his mother and father. He's been living up in Haran with his uncle Laban and his now new family in that area of Mesopotamia, marked with, culturally speaking, the worship of many gods. It was very common for households to have little idols. In fact, that's part of Jacob's story, is that uncle Laban accuses him of stealing the household gods. So it was very common to have the worship of many gods and to have these little idols, stone, wood, in your house, covering your bases of the deities. I'm fairly confident that even though Jacob, 
who comes in this long family line, and again, the God of Abraham and the covenant promises made to Abraham and the God of Isaac and the covenant promises made to Isaac and now the God of Jacob. I'm pretty confident Jacob didn't have all of his theology square. And he's still trying to figure out what does this mean to know and be in covenant relationship with this God, this one true God, the covenant God of my father and grandfather. And so his household... And those that traveled in his ever-growing family had lots of other idols all throughout their tents. And so now, after having lived in Mesopotamia and its culture, Jacob's like, all right, I'm going back to Bethel, and it's time for us to get rid of the idols. And there's all the language here of verse 2 is purification language. Put away the gods, purify your bodies, change your clothing, your garments, because we're going to do something different here, and we're not going to walk in this other way of life. Put away your gods. This is a move of family repentance, cleansing purification, purging of anything that would compete for worship of the one true God. And so the the scene is, I haven't read it yet on here, down in verse 4, the scene is kind of, I don't know if it's humorous, but like they gather up all the little idols. Obviously there was a, a stockpile of them. And they gather up their earrings, not because earrings are wrong or bad, but again, in this culture, oftentimes they made, scholars, archaeologists have found earrings that were made into the shapes of little idols, gods, goddesses, in their earrings. So they're taking off their little idol earrings, and they're gathering their family idols, and they put them underneath, they bury them under the tree, under the terebinth tree in Shechem. Because just like the culture, they had allowed a lot of this stuff to kind of just fit into their family and how they roll. Now, this story, again, uh, you could probably do some sort of like unhealthy application of this story. I lock the doors and gather the idols. Everyone's going to bury their car keys and credit cards under the tree in the backyard. all your secular music. This is obviously a very particular expression in a particular context, but here's what I love about this. This move of taking stock of your life and family is really helpful. Something clicks. Jacob's like, all right, it's time to go back to that place where God first met me, I think we better take, let's get rid of the idols before I go back and meet with God. He does a thorough inventory of his household. No more idols in our home. But do you realize for us how easy it is for things to just kind of collect? like dust on a bookshelf. Like, wow, that's really dusty. I had no idea how dusty that was. Are there idols 
among us. Now, here's the tricky thing about idols. In in some ways, it's easier when they're little statues. (laughs) It's easier when it's just little trinkets and earrings. What is an idol? My son and I were texting about that this week. What is an idol? It's when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Anything that competes for allegiance of worship for the one true God. And the the challenge is, is that your list of idols is probably going to be different than my list of idols. And they're not all just propped up on the mantle at home. Oftentimes they aren't bad things. And it takes maybe a little time to question, like, what is going on inside of me? Is there anything in my life and journey right now that is detracting from competing with, calling me away from full-hearted devotion to the one true God? There's an author named David Pallison. Uh, He wrote a helpful article many years ago with what he calls x-ray questions. And the heart of x-ray questions is to get through to the heart of the matter and ask some motivational questions. And I I included some here. His list has like 35, so I didn't put all of the questions there. But here are a few of his 35 to help identify functional gods in our household, in your life in your heart like what do you want desire crave lust and wish for where do you bank your hopes what do you fear and worry about what do you think you need another way of phrasing it what makes you tick or What sun does your planet revolve around? What lights up your world? What fountain of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, and security? Who must you please? Whose opinion counts? Whose victory or success would make your life happy? And now we're beginning to ask the questions of what's really going on inside of us. This helps paint idolatry in a different light. And I hope maybe even this morning you hear, this is why repentance is a really good thing and a really big gift for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. The great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like, that's what God is actually after, all of you. God wants your wholehearted devotion. And yet, if you stop for long enough in ordinary time and begin to ask these questions, we begin to realize there's stuff all the time, pulling and competing, voices speaking all the time, trying to pull us away from the one who loves us. And so the opportunity then is to repent, to say yes, 
to say, confess sin, to say, God, my, my mind, my heart, my love, my hopes, my dreams, my fears, my anxieties have been captured in these things. And Jesus, I want them to belong to you and you alone, so I'm going to turn. And so the invitation is not just to bury some pieces of, of stone or stick under the tree out back, but the invitation this morning is to bury those things at the foot of the cross of Calvary, the tree of Jesus, where he took on our sin and he has once for all dealt with it, that we may be free to love and serve and worship the one true God with all that we are. And then in time, again, as the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When your heart wanders, when your affections, your attentions begin to wander, the call is back to Jesus. Repent, repent again and again and again. Uh, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, this is thesis one that he nailed to the door of Wittenberg that started the great Reformation. Thesis one begins when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He willed that the entire life of the believer be repentance. It's not just, oh yeah, repentance. That's what I did back in 83. Oh, repentance. I, did, I repented in 2020. It's not just the beginning of the story or make sure you repent before you die and know where you're going, but that your entire life would be one of repentance because it's this gift of grace that continually pulls you back to wholeheartedness and connection and union with the one who's given all for you. So as Jacob returns to Bethel, he's returning, geographically returning, but also I think inside of him and his household, there's a returning, a reorientation of like, oh my goodness, there's a lot of stuff that has been accumulating in my household over these years, and it's time to call it out and to name it. And let's return to Bethel. Let's return, but let's repent. Sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, put away your idols. This is the stuff of ordinary time. Returning, repenting, and then one last, remembering. Here, here's the rest of this section, and we'll land the plane with this. Go ahead and go in verse five. So again, God calls him to go. He's like, okay, let's put away the idols. Verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. 
God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, Bethel. So Jacob and his family finally return, and they journey through to the land of Canaan, and there's some small you know, pieces where, where as they're journeying back, which could have meant trouble for them to journey through the land and cities and villages and other enemies, we're told that literally the terror of God fell upon their enemies to leave them alone so they're protected. And then they arrive in Bethel. Jacob builds an altar. Jacob likes to build altars. It's like, when in doubt, build another altar. He calls the place El Bethel. The God of Bethel. Bethel meaning the house of God. The God of the house of God. And it's there in verse 9 that God appears again. And if I may be Captain Obvious, there's a lot of repetition in the story. Jacob returns to Bethel again. God appears to Jacob again. God renames Jacob again. God blesses Jacob again. And it keeps going. God restates his promises again. Be fruitful and multiply again. He talks about the land again. A great name again. A great nation again which causes Jacob to pull out the oil again. And he sets up a pillar again. And he pours it out for worship again. And he renames the place Bethel again. You're like, how many times does he have to name this place? Like, put up a sign or something. And again, maybe this is so obvious that it doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it. Nothing through verses 9 through 15 is new. It's not new. None of it is. There's no new word. There's no new promise. There's no new activity. There's no new instruction or information or direction. Everything is a repetition of the old. It's old naming, promises, blessing, pillaring, anointing, worshiping. All of it is old. None of it is new. Or maybe you could say that the new word is the old word. And yet that's the beauty of the scene to me. That's the beauty of ordinary time to me. Is that Jacob again is given a chance to renew relationship with his God through the old, sure word that has already been spoken to him. But it hasn't been fully ingested or fully embodied or fully believed. And that, my friends, is why there's a need for remembrance.
For most of you, and there may be some in the room, this is all brand new. Welcome. For many of you, this is old. But it's the way in which God is trying to engage you again. Through the repetition. An invitation to return. And an invitation to remember that he's still the same God who has been pursuing you all the days of your life. He's still at it again. Do you see what's happening here? (laughs) Jacob is being brought back to the things that he may be tempted to forget. Okay, we clamor for the new, we want the new word, the new experience, the new highlight, we want the new whatever. And the question this morning is, have you forgotten the old word? Have you forgotten the old promise, the old command that could actually be a pathway in to a fresh experience with the same God? This story reminds me of something that Jesus said in his letter, John's letter, but Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. Revelation 2.4, Jesus is speaking to the church and he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or I'll put it, when I grew up, I grew up reading the New King James Version uh, that says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Do you remember your first love? Not just like your first girlfriend or boyfriend or your first crush, but do you remember your first love? Jesus is saying, you've, you've, you've forgotten. You've left your first love. Go back to Bethel. Do you remember? Do you remember? My first love brings me back to my teenage years. I would spend hours on my bed at night reading the Bible with Jesus. Not for Jesus or not to accomplish anything, for, just to be with Jesus. I would, it was so sweet. My first love brings me back to my baptism. When I was a kid in the Lewis River at Louisville Park down in Clark County, My first love brings me back to the days when I did not have all the right theological answers, but I had friends that I knew didn't know Jesus. And so I wrote their names on a piece of paper, and I put it by my bed, and I prayed for them because I wanted them to know Jesus too. I got to see some of them come to faith in Jesus. That was sweet. My first love brings me back to preaching. I'll put it in air quotes for the first time when I was a senior in high school to my youth group. And it was horrible. (laughs) It was horrible. But I really, really love studying the Bible and telling people about it. My first love brings me back to, (laughs) I was in the Clark County Fairgrounds. I was in college planning to be a high school history teacher. 
and I was not at peace in my soul. And I remember literally people thought I must have been a madman. I was wandering around the fairgrounds for a Christian music festival. And I remember like talking to God and talking to myself. And I finally said, God, okay, you win. That's it. I, I give in. I do not know fully what this means, but I'll do whatever you say. And that's when I began to move from being a high school history teacher to pursuing ministry, pastoral ministry. My first love brings me back to words of identity spoken over me and spoken to me. How about you? Like, is there a scene that comes to mind? Is there a song? Is there a scripture? Is there a moment? You're like, yeah, I remember when God got a hold of my life, when he broke in in a new sweet way. And if you are here this morning, you're like, no, never. Like, the crazy thing is, is that the God of the universe may want even today to be that day for you where he encounters you for the first time. But others of you, can you remember? Can you return? Is there an invitation to repent? Put away the stuff that's gotten in the way. This is the beauty of ordinary time. It may not be the fireworks or the mountaintop, but there still is this God who relentlessly pursues us. And maybe today, in your own way, you can pour out the oil of worship to him on a new stone, on a new altar. Let's pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're still alive and at work. You've pursued Jacob all his days. And you reminded him of what his name was, your promises to him, your invitations to him. And through him comes Jesus, the great king from his family line. God, we believe you still speak and you still draw, you still invite. And there's stuff you're doing here and now in the hearts and minds of my friends in this room. Lord, for those that maybe have left their first love or their heart has grown cold or just busy or distracted or disappointed or hurt, would you remind them this morning in a way that they may understand May you invite them to respond to you today in a way that is clear and different than yesterday. Stir our hearts, Lord. Allow us to get rid of any idols. May we experience your grace afresh today. Whether for the first time, God, or decades later. Bring us back to a place of communion, friendship with you. And may we be willing to respond with a yes of obedience to whatever you say. In Jesus' name, amen.